0: Welcome to the Birthing Instincts podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbine, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices,
1: and I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational-style podcast where we talk about everything birth.
0: Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Good morning. Good morning. I've missed you. Ah,
1: has it been that long?
0: No, it's only been six days. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Thank you, bliss. Yeah. so tell me what you're tell me what you're up to. Let's tell our listeners what we're up to. Uh,
1: I um I'm getting ready to leave Santa Barbara again go vid- go visit some family, but I found my home here in Santa Barbara for now yesterday. It was the very first place I looked at, and it is perfect for me and uh, I'm super excited to move in. So that's the next thing on my agenda.
0: You want to just tell me just a little bit about it? Is it like, do you have a view? Is it close to the beach? Do you have
1: a garden? trails? It's behind the Montecito um, Country Club. So it's up in the hills a little bit. And it's a beautiful garden. And I have the whole lower floor of a house that's just been newly remodeled. So no one else has ever lived in there. And... It's totally perfect for me. My dog can be with me, and it's great.
0: It sounds perfect. And Montecito is just tranquil most of the yeah. time. So Beautiful. very nice there. Beautiful old trees there. Just, I love the trees in Montecito. Yeah, it's a great spot. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. I, um, I'm going to go to South Bend, Indiana tomorrow uh, to teach. And then when I get back, I've got to have someone look at my eye. As a result of the two surgeries I've had, I was told my cataract would get worse. And uh, just suddenly, like four days ago, it just started to like get blurry. So I got to get that looked at. Hopefully, summer. I can get that fixed before I get on the beast and head out uh, for six weeks later in, the, later in the summer. Yeah. But that's about it for me right now. It's been very quiet. I've had a really peaceful week at the homestead. I've been swimming every day. Nice. I'm tan all over.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good job. That's to people's how imagination.
0: But yeah, somebody said something really clever to me, which I thought was funny. Uh, and I just wanted to read it in. I wish I could remember who said it to me, because I'm sorry that I don't. But we were talking about something on Instagram, I think. And she said, trying to get physiologic birth in a hospital is like trying to buy eggs in a hardware store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you heard that before?
1: um i've heard don't
0: go to the hardware store for milk yeah oh all right so okay i had
1: but yeah mm-hmm.
0: but i thought it's pretty good <laughs> pretty good analogy <laughs> and then i just want to say that i was part of a twitter meetup with dr poppy daniels and dr kim biss they hosted it with a lot of luminaries on there like christiane northrup and james thorpe and dan Mac- mcdyer and you know dr, Jancy and dr. Hannah. A bunch of OBGYNs got together to talk about a certain topic, which shall remain nameless. But I posted a link to it on Instagram, only to find that Instagram blocks the link to Twitter. So the fascists at Instagram are doing it. So if you want to find that, you go to uh, at Dr. Poppy Daniels on Instagram, and you can find that. And I'm going to do a summary of it for you, like I've done for other things in the past. And I'll probably put it up on Rumble uh, I don't use Rumble that much anymore, but I do have a Rumble page. So when that goes up, I will let everybody know.
1: And you said on Instagram or on Twitter?
0: It's on Twitter.
1: Okay, because you said on her name on Instagram, but you're saying on.
0: Twitter. Oh, no, her name on on Twitter at Dr. Poppy Daniels. Sorry. That's right. Okay. Yeah, Good. not on Instagram. You won't find it on Instagram. Okay. Because, of, because of the tr- it's too much truth.
1: Okay, no, well, it's too much truth. Yeah. On that note, I wanted to share something. Um, His name is John Campbell and um, I've talked about him before when we were in the middle of the pandemic. He's a nursing teacher from England. So he looked at a lot of the data and stuff. Um, But there's a report that came out with empirical data called Did the Lockdowns Work? And the subtitle is Lockdowns Were a Costly Failure. So that was really interesting. He goes over the report in a YouTube video called COVID restrictions um, are now conclusive. Evidence on COVID restrictions are now conclusive. So if you want to hear more about that or read that report, I'll make sure that that's in the show notes. Because basically, he says what we've been saying that our government there and here um, in regards to the lockdowns really did fail us. So
0: worse than failed us because. My research and talking to a lot of people has told me that a lot of the things that they did they knew in advance weren't going to work mm-hmm. or were already dangerous, and they did it anyway. So yeah. not just failure, it's worse. In the Sarah Wickham podcast, we talked about a term that we couldn't remember, and then last week, we, I, I brought it up and I said that term was action bias.
1: I love it. Action <laughs> bias
0: was a story about uh, you know soccer players uh, goalies know they should stand still on a penalty kick, but yet they dive anyway. And, and uh, Britta sent a email that was long and we're going to read her email on another podcast about her, her own story. But she mentioned this, she said, in your conversation with Dr. Sarah Wickham, you discussed one of the main issues of obstetrics at play here is, is if you do nothing, even though evidence says that's safer, the provider is more likely to be questioned and even reprimanded for the outcome. Versus Mm -hmm. if they do, quote, everything possible, unquote, i.e. more interventions, then the provider is vindicated for all that they have done in lieu of the outcome. This is the consequence we are facing by allowing litigation and politics into the practice of medicine, where it doesn't belong, instead of true evidence-based practice and informed consent. So that's her example of action bias, and, and she worded it so well. She says, Because she is a uh, hospital worker in Colorado, and she said, put my shoes on and leave my home for work with the hopes that my limited impact on the patients I care for is making a difference. Just maybe my expertise, support, and willingness to advocate for my patients will change the trajectory of that one family's experience and long-term outcomes. I also get the unique opportunity to focus my experiences on learning with each woman, each pregnant belly, and each newborn baby I care for. Mm -hmm. I think uplifting, I felt really good reading her note. Um, she is making a difference. We are making a difference. One family at a time, or you and I may be reaching a bunch of fellow travelers who are telling their families. And a lot of our families, if they're anything like mine, pay no attention to what I say. <laughs> but <laughs> some of it eventually will sink in. <laughs> right. And what's
1: so, our topic today?
0: Um, like, you know, I have a grandbaby and uh, and my son texted me the other day saying her belly looked a little distended and he sent me a little video and I said, I think she just needs like a little massaging and maybe a little burping and, you know, she'll be fine in an hour. And sure enough, an hour later, he texts me back, and says she's fine. Yeah. So because they were all worried, they were thinking, should we take her to urgent care? And I was like, don't take her to urgent care.
1: No. <laughs> um, hey, Stu, what's our topic today?
0: Well, a topic is uh, the downside of cesarean. Great, but we, before we get to that, I got a couple more things. As you know,
1: of course, I just want people to know that we uh, we do have a topic today, and uh, well, we're all, that's-
0: yeah, yeah. we we're, we're we're all told that uh, C section can be life saving. Everybody knows that, and the upsides are sold to us ad nauseum on a daily basis. But often, the risks or chances of problems discussed are limited to the immediate surgical problems and nothing long term. So I think today we're going to talk a little bit more about giving people true <laughs> true informed consent. Yeah. Ces- right. And
1: this is a request from a fellow traveler and um you know I think we do talk about kind of when to have a cesarean and when that might be necessary and when it's not necessary. But um, I don't think we've ever really gone into why, if you didn't know, if you hadn't done your research, why would you want to avoid a cesarean? So that will be what we're talking about in a little bit. But before that.
0: Oh, before that, I have uh, just one uh, one letter. And then I'd also like to talk after that, give a little analysis on a popular YouTube podcast that somebody sent me. And I'll bring that up in just a second. So stay tuned. Okay. Uh, Katie from Instagram wrote a response to a quote that I had on Mamostafit podcast, which was most people never see baby born or a person die. And I think we talked about that before, that we've sterilized birth and death in the United States. She says, uh, Katie says, I'm an ICU RN and I've been with people as they die. And this weird fact that you, you stated really started to bother me. People make terrible end of life decisions because of this fact. I left my OBGYN during my COVID pregnancy, found a midwife, found your podcast, never been happier, currently pregnant again, and can't wait for another natural birth. It was the most amazing thing. So I said to her, for messages like this, I have gotten out of bed for 40 years. Thanks, Katie. And she says, you know, the thing that makes me sad is that my OBGYN has a really great bedside manner. She was caring and listened but she definitely took orders from the protocols. She wanted to induce me with my first because I was 38 years old, which I declined. But COVID just showed me what they really cared about. We weren't vaxxed, so my husband wasn't allowed to my appointments with my second baby, et cetera, et cetera. And so I left. But your podcast gave me a lot of confidence moving out of that medical protocol model. So I said to her, I guess I'll get out of bed today too. (laughs) Because, yeah, it's for people like that 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 for 40 years I've gotten out of bed because sometimes it's not easy to get out of bed.
1: No, especially in the middle of the night.
0: <laughs> especially in the middle of the night. Uh, by the way, today is my oldest nephew's 40th birthday. I have a nephew who's 40, and and when I when I sent him an email this morning, I I, I mentioned the fact that I remember like it was yesterday, me carrying him around at Cooperstown at the Baseball Hall of Fame (laughs) where he was a 20-year-old baby. So um, that's an amazing thing about 40 years. So I probably was just starting my residency when he was born. Anyway, just nice memories. Okay, so there's a podcast out there, which is on YouTube, called The Unplanned Podcasts. And they only have 16 episodes. And I got this email. Uh, from somebody, or actually it was a a message on Instagram. It says, Hi, Dr. Stu. I just recently found this podcast and started listening to this episode. The co-host, Abby, is pregnant with baby number two and had a shoulder dystocia with baby number one. Her OB is now recommending a C-section because of the shoulder dystocia. How insane. I will send over the podcast in case you want to take a listen and share on the Birthing Instincts podcast. I think in the past, I wouldn't have thought anything about this was wrong. But after listening to the countless episodes of You and Bliss, I can't stand what this OB is doing to this mom. So, what's interesting about that is, again, I am so OCD that people send me stuff. And even if it's, I wake up at one in the morning and I've got, I can't go back to bed, I'll watch something and I'll try to honor the fact that people send me stuff. So, I went to this and I looked, and it's really pretty amazing because. This is only episode sixteen for these this couple, and this episode has four hundred three thousand views, and over twenty five thousand likes. So I just wanted to sort of dissect it a little bit. Um, we'll put the link to the podcast up. You don't have to watch it uh, because I'm going to summarize it. But I just think that if this is that popular and this is what they're saying, then I I sort of want to put out an alternative to that. And I know that you'll have your opinions i can see it already in your face okay they see they're seemingly very lovely couple
1: okay and and the other thing this is about uh a shoulder dystocia right right? so we did do an episode about that yeah do you remember which number it is a lot of what we talked about in depth there Mm
0: -hmm. yeah shoulder dystocia um with baby number one and they apparently became famous for a viral video of when she had a positive pregnancy test for baby number two okay (laughs) so <laughs> isn't it fascinating that uh, why that's we become famous these days?
1: It is fascinating.
0: I mean, every woman who's ever had a baby, pretty much every woman, has had a positive pregnancy test. <laughs> and yet this person becomes famous for that. And so this brought me to the, it reminded me in my mind of a book by Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell called The Tipping Point. Mm-hmm. And if any of you haven't read it, it's an interesting book to read because it talks about why some things succeed, some products succeed, and others don't, and why some products come back or not and the I remember the example was about hush puppies. Hush puppies were really popular, I don't know it was it fifties or sixties or whatever it was, the, and then they just
1: the shoes right or food shoes
0: yeah, 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 is there something else?
1: Hush puppies is a food,
0: oh, it is. Oh, I thought it was like something you smoke or something. No,
1: <laughs> she's yeah, okay. You yeah. remember?
0: Remember who you're talking to here.
1: I know. I just I'm clarifying for people because <laughs> whom they know. Some people don't know.
0: And then they disappeared. And then and then some celebrity or something was wearing a pair, and they became popular again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's the same thing here. Why would a why would this particular video of her responding to her pregnancy test? go viral and then launch them into a podcast career. And it's it's fascinating. It's a fascinating thing. Anyway, they seem very nice. She starts out by saying, I'm kind of weird and I'm easily freaked out. So that gives you some background. Mm -hmm. And she says for her, ignorance is bliss. The other kind, (laughs) not you. (laughs) Right. And she went into pregnancy with no birth plan. By the way, this is true for many people. Many people prefer to live by what's traditionally called the ostrich theory of life, which is if you don't see it, it isn't there. And if you don't hear it and you don't know about it, then you don't have to think about it and worry about it. And for those of us that worry about a lot of things, sometimes ignorance is bliss. Okay, She says at the hospital, quote, people knew what was going on, unquote. Now, I'm telling you from my experience, that's not always true. But the fact that she thinks that everybody around her knows what's going on. Makes her feel safe. Okay. Ultimately, feeling safe is important, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's it. That's it for your commentary so far.
1: Yep, that's it. Okay, keep going.
0: She says she respects all choices. For her, a hospital birth, thirty-nine week induction, epidural was okay. Uh, and I wrote, surrendering autonomy should not be okay without true informed consent. However. And I think that in the in the cases that most go on in the doctor's offices, we see people surrendering to skewed informed consent, not true informed consent. Then her husband chimes in. He says, with all that happened, you would have certainly had an emergency C-section because your baby was big and you're a little lady. She's talking about the first birth when they ended up having a uh, shoulder dystocia. And we've talked about shoulder dystocia before. It's not predictable. It's not necessarily li- related to the size of a woman's pelvis. It's probably more related often to the to the way they're laboring and the fact that they're numb and on the, you know, with an epidural and flat on their back may have more to do with it than being a little lady with a bigger baby.
1: Well, it's about the rotation of the baby, just like when we step in with a breach, we can see that there's a dysfunction in the way that the babies normally deliver. And then there are maneuvers to help the impacted shoulder or whatever is impacting the ability for the baby to rotate and deliver. So
0: yeah, and she says that uh, because of my bones, the baby got stuck. That's what she thinks.
1: Yeah. These are the stories that we tell each other, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Right. The shoulder dulce was intense, but it was less than one minute and they put my legs way back, which was McRoberts maneuver. And then they pushed on her belly. Now I don't know if they, when they say pushed on your belly, did they mean super pubically or do they mean fundally? Cause fundally right. would be correct. And that's what it sounds like. Cause she was sort of showing how they were pushing on her belly in the video.
1: Fundally would be incorrect. Is that what you said?
0: Yeah. If you got yeah. an impacted shoulder, the last thing you want to do is push fundally. Yes. You want to, you want to reduce station. You want to, I love the Rixa Rixa freeze has an analogy that I don't know if she invented it or she got it from someplace else. Oh you know what I'm going to say? Yeah. All right. Say it.
1: So it's kind of like when you have a utensil stuck in your kitchen drawer and you go to pull it out, it's common sense that you don't want to keep pulling or what you're saying, pushing from the fundus is pushing from above. So, um, you, you kind of push the drawer back in a little bit and dislodge that, that utensil so that you can open the drawer. And so it's similar to that when, we're, when we have um, these dysfunctions in a baby's delivery.
0: Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Shoulder dystocia and breach very commonly. So, okay. So now she's 24 weeks pregnant. She had her 24-week prenatal visit with her second baby. And she says there's big news from her doctor. The doctor is the same one that delivered the first baby. So that was the one that was there for the shoulder dystocia. And she says, my doctor's really confident she's just not fuzzy. Okay.
1: Like like warm and fuzzy? Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. She just said fuzzy, but that's what she means. And I didn't want to bother her with with questions. Mm. All right. So I'm just saying again, to each his own, but this person works for you. (laughs) Yeah. You have every right to ask questions. So she said... She preferred when she had her visits with the nurse practitioner in the practice. Cause then she can ask questions.
1: So she's just led to feel not like there's an opening for that with the doctor. The doctors too busy or too important or something.
0: Yeah. And then, well, the doctor's time is limited and doctors, they get on this sort of automated routine of just, you know, blood pressure, fundal height, how you doing? You look good. See you next week that's the model by which they care for and and i'm not saying that this woman should feel any differently than she does i want to validate what she's feeling but what i'm saying is, is that that's not going to lead to good medical care if you if if you have people who are you think are competent but they but they don't communicate well that's a huge part of your care is is communication okay yes. so the husband then comes up with the poop sandwich analogy you know what the poop sandwich analogy is That one, I don't know. Tell us. So it's a poop sandwich analogy for bad news. So instead of coming out and telling her bad news, usually with a poop sandwich, you say something complimentary, then you give the bad news, and then you reassure them afterwards. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he says, well, this doctor served poop on a platter. (laughs) That was funny. The doctor says, hey, we are going to have to really consider a cesarean section. Uh, your husband was big. Your current baby's on the big side. What does that even mean, by the way, on the big side? And she's 24 weeks. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's for lack of a better term, she's already grooming her to go for a repeat cesarean section. And then she goes through a laundry list of all the bad things that could have happened in her first baby with a shoulder dystocia, such as brain damage, nerve injury, and death.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, hmm so, Okay. Again, I I don't know that this couple actually gets it, how bad this is and how wrong this is to be talking about all that. And of course, there was never any mention about the risks of the recommended C-section. Right. And and the usual question that I always bring up is, do you want a third baby? Would would that ever have been asked of her? And the answer, I'm sure, was probably not asked. And the husband's this, you know, kind of, supporting the doctor, and, and, and they, they like the doctor, so they're, they're rationalizing why the doctor is doing what they're doing. He says, the doctor is just wanting to inform you. But any information about the risks of C-section and about not wanting a third baby are part of being informed. And, and so that, that, that's what happened. So mom says she was shocked and she cried, and she expected her second baby to just slide out because that's what her friends told her. But said the doctor said there's an increased risk of it happening again. Right here we go with uh, Sarah Wickham's wisdom here. All right, we have and, and ours. <laughs> We've talked about it before, but I I love quoting Sarah. There's an increased chance of it happening again. That's true. Yeah. But what is that increased risk? All right, and what is the increased risk if you put her with an epidural flat on her back again, versus right. if she's able to move and get around and do things differently and squat and kneel and get in the water and do all the things that we do. And then she says, but the ultimate decision is up to you.
1: The doctor did. Mm-hmm. So
0: the doctor just laid out a poop sandwich, on a not even a poop sandwich, poop on a platter, and then said, now you decide.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's the average person going to decide? Right. Then they said something really interesting. They said they both mentioned that most people do not know their own birth story. And that's probably true. I mean, I know all I know about mine was my mom got sedated and I was pulled out with forceps, but I don't know if I was skin to skin. I don't know if I was in the nursery for 10 days. I I have no idea. So that's probably true. And so if you don't know your birth story, then does it really matter how you're born? Yes. Yes. So tell us why.
1: Um, Because you are imprinted. So just like a, a, an animal you would get from the shelter or something, you can tell that th- that they have things that have happened to them, even though there's no language. Babies or us as babies are the same way. And we're imprinted by our experience in utero and then also in our delivery. Plus, there are long-term health ramifications that also you might not know your story, but it's going to follow you in terms of your your health many times.
0: Yeah, of course. Of course. So then uh, mom said, she, she said, being awake in surgery is really hard. Yeah. She said, so the husband says, I don't understand why they just can't put you out.
1: <laughs> they can.
0: I, I just throw an <laughs> Um, Yeah. I mean, again, lay people often it's dangerous when they're, again, they have every right to give their story and, and their story is their story. And I, and I respect them for sharing the story, but When 403,000 people have watched this, I got to let people know I I understand that, you know, it it isn't that simple. C section is so common that so the doctors know what they're doing. It's going to be fine. That's what they, that's the thought process here. And then he also said best to go with the medical experts because they went to school. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) everything that I talk about sometimes. The husband's almost like on cue just saying things because this is what most people think. Yeah. I'll defer to the expert. He went to medical school or he went to residency and not thinking that, yeah, but they, they didn't learn anything about normal birthing.
1: Yeah. And there's so many other things at play, like in terms of uh, liability and insurance and administratives and all of that. doesn't have to do with just that.
0: And then toward the end, she said something that's, that bothered me a lot. She said, for her, um, my confidence was taken away. And uh, and if I have a C-section, I have the concern about the culture of shame that will come along with it, that people will, you know, clearly these people are, they're, they're children of social media. Mm-hmm. And they know that when they post stuff like this, they're going to get, what do you call it, trolled. I guess trolled, and people are going to say mean things to them and stuff like that. That's just what you put yourself out there. That's what happens. And she's aware she'll get a lot of criticism in the comments. And 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 I I feel for her because for that to be the something that's bothering her, I would love to like give give this woman a big hug and tell her they're all fuckers. Don't pay any attention to them. (laughs) Do you? It's your story. So, and then the husband said something very. And he says, this is not a judgment on anyone, anyone's worth as a mom. No. And that's true. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I put an adamant yes. And I just I want to close out this segment by just saying this whole saga is not a criticism of this couple at all. Mm-hmm. They don't know a lot, but they're genuine in their story. The criticism is about the doctor and the implantation of fear. And the, and the lack of informed consent and the skewing of consent. And totally going over the head of the average person. Right. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. Thanks for breaking that down. <laughs> I love
0: when you give me that look. <laughs> this like, okay. is
1: my, my sleepy look. So it's not you. Don't take it personal. Oh,
0: uh, yeah. I saw you on there earlier too. So that's okay. Cause we are who we are. I'm I'm drinking grapefruit juice this morning. What are you drinking?
1: Coffee, lots of coffee. I spilled my first one, <laughs> so two, it. two-thirds of the coffee disappeared. I was like, oh, I guess I've. You see later. my cup? Uh oh, look, fancy thing.
0: Yeah, it says "Birthing Instincts" with Dr. Stew. Somebody gave that to me.
1: That's nice.
0: You know what? I'm really bad at remembering things. Like I don't remember who gave me a quote. I don't remember who gave me a cup. I just don't remember. So please, please, please never get offended by that. All right, let's take a quick break and come back and talk about the downsides of cesarean. Okay, great. Elements, a tasty electric-like drink they've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the
1: BS, just like us.
0: It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those. Okay, (laughs) Uh, But it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty.
1: Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box.
0: Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yep. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw. Your favorite?
1: Mango chili.
0: Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon frozen.
1: habanero.
0: Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's
1: a It's a spicy chili. Okay, yeah, there you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth, and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there, had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah, and it it
0: comes in a little packet, so that you you don't have any waste.
1: Right, like throwing
0: bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that that sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element. That's drink l m n t dot com backslash birthing instincts and you get a free sample pack with any order great thanks element
1: thank you we're back
0: we are back okay so somebody wrote you a letter asking about this Do you want to say a little bit
1: about what they asked yeah oh i mentioned it earlier i know okay. but
0: now we're on the topic
1: So, um, I believe that it was, um, on Instagram, one of our listeners, uh, just said, you know, I I don't think you guys have ever really covered the downside of cesarean. And I thought that, that would be a really helpful topic because I do think like you were saying in the last segment, there's a lot of people who think, well, this is, you know, something that they do all the time. Actually, I believe cesarean section is the number one, uh, surgery, right? that's performed. So um, they don't really see a downside. You know, some people who maybe are feeling uncomfortable about birthing a baby through their vagina, all this um, cultural conversations around what that does to your body. And they think that this is the easy way out. And so I think it is good to like, look at it a little bit deeper and be like, why would you want to avoid a cesarean? Now, We're not coming from the perspective that cesareans are never necessary and that they're not a life-saving procedure because they absolutely are. Unfortunately, they're used way more than they need to be. So having true informed consent, which I don't know that you always necessarily get that when you're in the hospital. I think you sign something that maybe you don't really know all of the details of what could happen. So I think it's great you as a surgeon and me as someone who's been by people's side during these procedures to just be able to talk about that.
0: Yeah. I don't think we've de- dedicated a topic to it ever, but it's, it's come, it comes up all the time. Yeah. Uh, in, cause pretty much everything we talk about ultimately re- results in the options of cesarean section. And then, you know, cause I know that I've said a thousand times that they never asked, do you want more children? And because one of the downsides, obviously of cesarean section puts that, that, idea at more risk. You know, because we, we're we constantly told in the medical model that cesarean section is this very safe procedure, takes about 35 30 to, to 45 minutes to do, you know, you can, we know what time we're going to start. We know what time you're going to finish. We, we, you know, it's, it's routinely done. And, and pretty much worldwide, it's done the same way all over. So it is, as surgeries go, relatively safe it is uh, a major abdominal surgery and as such carries with it significant risks that go along with major abdominal surgery now those risks are not that common but when they happen they can be devastating right so we should we should not downplay them as much as the my colleagues in obstetrics do to the idea that we're doing about 1.3 million cesarean sections every year in the united states Um, and the rate is 30 above 32% or so, which means one in every three women are having a cesarean section. And we think that that's okay because we're doing a procedure that doctors do all the time and therefore it's relatively safe and stuff like that. That's what we're fed all the time. So let's, let's briefly talk about it. And you chime in when you want to sort of made a list of things that are downsides of cesarean.
1: Okay. And w- and would you do me a favor before you jump into that? Or maybe this is part of what you planned. Could you just break down exactly how you perform a cesarean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that and then I went, I, I went on ahead and I skipped it, but that's, I did want to, I did want to describe it to people if they want to know. Okay. So depending on the reason you're having a cesarean, but let's just take the calmest scenario, which is an elective scheduled cesarean section not really elective, because you're coerced into it. But uh, a scheduled cesarean section, so you're brought into the hospital uh, usually a couple hours beforehand. You're not supposed to have eaten anything. Uh, you're going. They're going to start an IV. They're going to draw your blood work on you. They're going to put your baby on a monitor. They're going to have you get change into a hospital gown, pee in a cup, and you're gonna. The nurses are going to ask you a whole bunch of questions. And then the anesthesiologist is going to come and ask you a whole bunch of the same questions. And then the pre-op nurse is going to come and probably ask you the same questions. <laughs> That's pretty typical of what goes on. And they're going to tell you kind of what's going to happen. They say, we're going to go in the room. We're going to move you to the other table. We're going to uh, put in your e- uh, epidural or put in your uh, spinal or whatever, however, regional anesthetic they're going to use. Once you're numb uh, or beginning numb, we're going to... Uh, uh, Move, move your legs. We're going to put a catheter into your bladder. And they should always, by the way, they should always wait until after you've had your anesthetic to put the catheter in the bladder. There's no reason to make someone uncomfortable when they're going to be numb anyway in 10 minutes. So just if they say we're going to put a Foley in and then give you the epidural or something like that, just say, uh, can we do it the other way around? Then they put you back laying flat on your back. Sometimes wedge the table will tilt a little bit to one side to roll your uterus off of your aorta. And then they prep your abdomen with a solution of, of sterile stuff. Many different hospitals will use different types of things, but they'll use sterile stuff to clean off your abdomen. And then they p- put a drape on, which has a window in it, where your where you're low transverse, generally going to be a low transverse scar. So it's going to be a, you know, a rectangular window over the area that they're going to cut. And then um, when anesthesia thinks that you're ready, your surgeon will test your skin with a little clamp to see if you feel anything. And if you still feel something, then they'll wait. Generally, as long as it's not an emergency, they're going to wait and ask anesthesia to give you a little more medicine, and they'll wait long enough until you're numb. If you're feeling these, you can feel movement, but you should not feel any pain. And if you feel pain, you should speak up and say, because that's not normal. And then once you're numb, they'll often use... uh, at least we did at Cedars, we used a marker, a sterile marker to make a line because we wanted to make a nice scar. And uh, we made it very low because we're in Southern California and it's bikini country. But uh, my sister had a C-section and she had a midline and that was not uncommonly done in the East Coast. I think that's changed now, but that was 40 years ago when they were doing those sorts of things. So it's going to be a low transverse incision. It's made with a scalpel once you're down through the skin, they take what's called a bovy cautery machine and they, and they cut using the bovy, which sort of cauterizes as it cuts. So the little vessels in your subcutaneous tissue and fat, you know, don't bleed. And then they get down to the fascia and they nick the fascia and then they cut the fascia either again using a scissors or or some other instrument. Then they separate the muscle. It's usually done bluntly. Um, but it can be with a with a again with the scissors and pulled pulled apart. That's your rectus muscle. That's your big, you know, that's your six-pack muscle. Mm-hmm. So, and they and that gets separated up, up, up and down along the, the raphe that runs between the right abdominal muscle and the left abdominal muscle. So they don't usually cut muscle, which is nice. There is another incision called a Maylard incision where they actually just cut right through the rectus muscle. And apparently it's supposed to heal just fine. I'm always wondering about that because scar tissue just doesn't heal the same as muscle. Uh, Then they enter the peritoneal cavity and they put in a retractor uh, to pull down and one to pull up. And then they take a little scissors and they make a little incision in the covering of the uterus called the peritoneum. And that's where the bladder is attached. And then they push the bladder down and then they readjust the retractor. So now the bladder is underneath protected by the retractor. And then they make a transverse incision into the uterus, getting really close. And sometimes they'll make the last poke with their finger so that they don't risk cutting the baby. And they poke it in. And sometimes when they poke it in, uh, the waters will rupture and all the water will run out. And then they take a scissors and they cut, you know, transversely big enough to get their hand inside and and get the baby's head to come up and deliver the baby.
1: We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys, your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family.
0: You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush.
1: You recognized it? Of
0: course not. <laughs> no,
1: really impressed. No,
0: but the midwife I was with recognized it right away.
1: Seventy um, percent of the immune system resides in the gut, so comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so
0: go to their website at, at thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men. So you can, men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their, we love their sponsor.
1: And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners and they're recommended by over 3,000 women health experts, just like us.
0: And I was going to say that.
1: (laughs) I stole your.
0: You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com, just spell it out. And use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. This is needed.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just mm-hmm. this uh, use the code word birthing instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, needed. Thank you. Then once the baby's out, you ideally you would get some delayed cord clamping, but they're always reluctant to delay it for too long because you're bleeding at this time, not so much from the skin incisions, but from the uterine incisions, which because the uterus is really vascular. And so you're going to be bleeding. And so they don't want to wait too long because they want to get the baby out, the placenta out and begin to close up the incision so that you don't lose too much blood. So you have to ask for a little bit longer, delayed cord clamping. And then, you know, they do, I don't like the term gentle cesarean, but they do this thing where if you could ask for it in some hospitals, they can even have you put on sterile gloves and help pull your own baby up onto your chest. Um, it's pretty rare that most hospitals will do that. They don't want, they're afraid of breaking their sterile field. I don't think there's much risk to that if, if it's done properly. And it certainly would be, uh, uplifting for the mom to be able to be part of that process. Anyway, once they cut the cord, they reach in and pull out the placenta. They don't wait for the placenta like we would do with a vaginal delivery. They go in and shear it off with their hand. And then often at that point, they'll be giving you medication in your IV, probably some antibiotics. And usually Pitocin to make your uterus contract down. And then they actually pull the uterus generally out of your belly and on top. And then they repair the incision with a running lock stitch, the uterine incision, excuse me, with a running lock stitch. And then they'll often put a second layer in uh, to help with keeping the, uh, it's called hemostasis to keep the uh, lack of uh, bleeding or to slow down bleeding. And then they put the uterus back inside and they kind of clean out the gutters and the blood and the amniotic fluid that might have spilled into the inside your belly. They'll clean that out with suction or with sponges. They'll take a real good look at the incision to make sure there's nothing bleeding anymore. And once that's the case, then they'll repair the layer of the bladder, the peritoneum of the bladder. And then they uh, put the uh, muscle back together, the fascia back together with stitching. Sometimes they'll run a uh, a subcutaneous. a cutaneous stitch probably not, and then they'll either close your skin with a subcutaneous stitch or staples, and the whole thing takes between thirty-five and forty-five minutes on average. And uh, as it says, just me describing it makes it sound pretty routine. And it no, is. I don't
1: know. My uterus outside of my body um does not sound routine, but yeah.
0: Yes. It is for the people doing the work, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's not natural. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: That's why they'll talk about their golf game while they're doing it. Cause to them, it's just work, you know, but for us, it's a big, it's a really big deal for most, for most. And uh, they have
0: to remember by the way, because at some point the baby often goes to the nursery and the dad will go with the baby and the mom will be left there alone with the anesthesiologist. And, and often doctors will end up talking about something and forgetting that the, the person they're operating on is still awake and listening and listening. Yeah. To everybody.
1: One of the, uh, you know, women's most uncomfortable, uh, experiences is that she's just there vulnerable, but no one seems to really be paying attention to that. So.
0: Right. And we could do better. Um, I mean, some of the circulating nurses are quite good at that, but a lot of times by that point, the circulating nurses are so busy dealing with their charting and cleaning up and doing other things that, that for the last time while they're closing, you're right. It's a time where the woman is her mind is left to think about how did I get here and how did this all happen? And. Yeah. And as that, the lady in the podcast said, you know, um, culturally, am I now a failure? Am I going to be ridiculed? Am I going to, you know, now again, for section for some is a, is a, is a godsend mm-hmm. because you have delivering a baby vaginally is a bridge they don't want to cross. And so that's cool. Yeah. But that, so that's, that's the surgery. Great. And whenever it goes you. well, there's still a lot of mountains or hills to climb afterwards. Okay. So anytime you break the skin, you risk infection. So clearly there's uh, nature-designed birthing to be done vaginally because not only is the tissues designed to stretch and do all that stuff, but there's also a better immunity down there. It's really, really rare for a laceration or even an episiotomy or anything like that to get infected. It's a very rare thing that happens, but on our yonis, yonis because of the blood flow, the lymphatics, the the way the immunity is set up down there. It's self self cleaning oven. Did you say
1: like a self cleaning oven? Yeah, you don't need to do anything; it just works itself out.
0: Yeah. All right. (laughs) Uh, So, but that's not so true with the with the skin on your on your belly. Mm -hmm. So, even though everything's done steri,ly it doesn't mean that bacteria can't get in there. And so it's not uncommon to see a wound, either seroma or wound infection. And I don't mean when I say uncommon, does it happen? I can't give you a percentage, but I would say 5 to 15% of the time, you're going to see some problem with the incision. And usually what happens is if you get an infection in the incision, it'll eventually work its way out and drain. And once it drains it, then it heals really quickly, but it heals It it closes by what's called secondary intention, which means that you can't just sew it back together again. You have to let it close slowly from the bottom up. Uh, So you might require packing uh, a nurse, that sort of thing, or teaching someone in the family how to take care of it. But it's not usually a serious thing. It's just an annoying thing. A serious infection is actually quite rare after cesarean section. Let's be honest about that. Okay. With cesarean section, you uh, are definitely going to have an average blood loss that's greater than with vaginal delivery. Right. And so if you, if you started out anemic and you lose a lot of blood, you're more likely to get a transfusion and all the risks that potentially go along with transfusion, the known risks and now the unknown risk of getting blood. That's got spike protein in it. We don't really know how that's ever going to be sorted out. So people want to avoid a transfusion now more than ever. Right. have to worry about getting AIDS from a transfusion anymore because that's been very screened for. Hepatitis C has been screened for, but now we've got this new thing that we don't know. So you don't want to, so there is a greater risk of transfusion, which which is a downside.
1: Yeah. And you, you mentioned the higher risk of infection, but there's also higher risk of blood clots.
0: Right. That would be, that's next, but go ahead. Why don't you talk about blood clots?
1: Well, I mean, anytime that you have a surgery, there's a possibility that there could be a clot that that gets thrown um, into your system, which can cause major problems, sometimes even death. So um, it's it's a big deal, and that it's it's a reason to avoid any surgery unless it's absolutely necessary. So when weighing out the odds, um, understanding that. Major surgery takes longer to recover from, there's a higher chance of infection. You're gonna to have to have antibiotics. Um, you're gonna have more blood loss, like you said. So that your recovery is just gonna take longer. But the risk of blood clots can be very serious.
0: Yeah, and, and pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. So you're you're more at risk for blood clots anyway. But when you're immobilized after surgery and there's stasis of blood, there's a potential for a higher rate of of that. And then you also did mention that. Almost routinely, women are given antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Antibiotics affect your microbiome. Yeah. One of the things I've never mentioned to you is, can that affect your gut? Can it affect your breast milk? Can it affect the, the your skin bacteria? Can it alter your baby's microbiome by you getting mm-hmm. one dose or more than one dose of an antibiotic as prophylaxis? We're not talking. And by the way, what I described was the classic scheduled... C-section. When things are done emergently and stuff, things are done differently to some degree. The surgery itself isn't, but the prep and all that other stuff, things happen a lot faster. Um, There's differences, but we can't get into every nuance or we will never have time for all that. Yeah. So it's certainly an issue. Injury to the bowel and injury to the bladder are definitely known risks of or downsides of cesarean section. And bowel injury can occur in a couple of ways. Bowel injury can occur in direct injury to the bowel because maybe it's her second C-section or third C-section or she had a ruptured appendix 10 years ago and she's got adhesions. And when you're going into the abdomen, you don't expect things, you expect things to be where you expect them to be. And sometimes when you've had a previous surgery or some other inflammatory bowel problem, um, like Crohn's disease, you can get bowel that's stuck in the wrong place and you can accidentally use your scalpel and nick the bowel. And if you recognize it, you can fix it right then and there generally. But if you don't recognize it, that can be a real problem. And then you can have delayed injury. And delayed injury is often from scarring and the ball getting stuck on the scarring and then twisting on itself and you get what's called a bowel obstruction. And that can occur months to years later. Anytime you've had abdominal surgery, that's a risk factor. Yeah, so, I
1: had a friend, actually a mutual friend of ours, from the sanctuary who ended up having a bowel obstruction from her, um, cesarean from 10 years previous. So this is the extreme consequence that, um, that we've talked about before from cesarean sections, you know, you might not see it immediately, but the long-term, um, risks to your health is, can be significant. And then you also mentioned What about subsequent pregnancies and how it affects that in terms of the potential of having um, some kind of a with your placenta that goes up considerably, potentially your options for having a vaginal delivery decreases because of your, um, maybe things like here in Santa Barbara where there's hospital bands or providers that don't feel comfortable with it. So that can be a big thing. And then, um, Obviously, every time you have a surgery on your uterus, the risk of a uterine rupture, although it is low, that is a risk that you kind of have to think about for future pregnancies and deliveries.
0: Right. So, and so again, back to injuries of, um, then you have the injury of the bladder is possible too. Mm -hmm. And the bladder usually is from directly from the scalpel. And often it becomes much more with each subsequent cesarean section, or previous abdominal surgery, it becomes more likely because things don't always go back to exactly where they're supposed to go back to when you've had surgery. And how people heal inside is often a genetic thing.
1: Mm.
0: People that have surgery and you go back in and it's pristine in there, and there are people that have surgery and you go back in and there's adhesions everywhere. Yeah. And the question why does that happen? Um, when neither one of them had a known infection or known other problem, and some of it is probably just the way they're genetically built and how they heal. So you can have injuries to the bladder, which can be, uh, if not picked up right away, can be a problem. And when you have the surgery, you can have extensions of the incision that go off into the what's called the broad ligament. And along in the broad ligament, if it's bleeding in there, that's where the ureter runs. And so theoretically, if you have to put in sutures to control bleeding there, you could, if you're not careful, you could, you could grab a ureter and then you could have kidney uh, injury as well. So Again, even though this surgery is routine, it's never routine. Then you mentioned poor healing of the scar. That's for sure. And with each subsequent cesarean, the risk or the chance of a uh, bad outcome, like a uterine rupture or a placenta accreta uh, or what's that called abnormal plac- placentation increases. Right. Yeah. Then you also have the risks of anesthesia. Right. Mm-hmm. This is something that that is often only briefly talked about when the anesthesiologist comes to see you to put in your regional anesthesia. And you're already, you know, under a lot of duress and stress. And they come in and they tell you, yeah, you could have a headache. You could have this. You could have that. You could get a hematoma. You could do this. Um, But, you know, what choice do you have at that point? So you're not really being given informed consent. You're just being given information about what they're going to be doing. Uh, But there is a risk. And, again, anesthesiologists are really good at what they do. And most of the time they do a great job, but you always hear stories of women who said, I could feel everything on the right side of my body and only my left side was numb. Or, you know, afterwards I I had a, I had have a blood patch because I got a headache that went on afterwards. So there are things that can happen from this and there are mistakes in medication that can be made. So anytime you're putting yourself in an operating room situation, there's room for iatrogenic human error. Right. That's always to play. Right. Again, small, but something that we should, you should make every effort you can to avoid being in that situation if you can. And then there's, of course, the risk of fetal injury from surgery. And that's not just from being nicked with a scalpel.
1: Although that but, happens.
0: That does happen. But mm-hmm. some of the worst injuries of babies born by uh, uh, to babies in the term breach trial were the babies born by cesarean section? So babies born by cesarean section can still have brachial plexus injuries, can still have neck injuries, can still have broken clavicles or broken bones. So it, it doesn't free you up from that risk. Nature isn't stupid. Nature designed a way for the baby to get out, and when you do something different, it doesn't remove all risks. It actually adds a whole new set of risks.
1: Yeah, and and babies. Uh don't get those kinds of injuries usually Usually from a physiologic birth. That's, that would be extremely rare. Those are, yeah. those are done through the providers.
0: Yes. Almost. I mean, that's true. Almost all brachial plexus injuries or broken clavicles are because the, okay. uh, a problem arises and rather than, or even a problem doesn't even arise. They just, okay. too hand, they're too handsy. They're always putting their hands on or, or they're pulling down or doing this, or they're they're yeah, you're right. But even in mm-hmm. the best physiologic birth, you could still have an injury. But they are rare. Very. Okay. Yeah. So then then there's also um the downsides of cesarean need to also be compared to vaginal delivery. You know, they always compare vaginal breach delivery to cesarean for breach delivery and they say oh cesarean is much better for this well that's not even true but they never tell you that the cesarean has a lot of other things to it that the vaginal breach delivery doesn't and so in this particular thing things like slower recovery
1: Mm
0: all right say you have three kids at home and now you have a newborn and you're a mom and your husband works and he can't take more than a couple weeks off and you're responsible for that. And you're recovering from a major abdominal surgery. Right. They tell you that you shouldn't drive for at least two weeks after that. And you shouldn't really do any strenuous lifting or heavy exercise for six weeks. Try telling that to a mom who's got two or three other little toddlers running around the house that she's not supposed to. So plan ahead if you're going to have a cesarean and get, and get family members, get somebody to come and help out because your recovery is going to be slower. And the more you can rest, the faster your recovery will be.
1: Yeah, we'll do that anyway. Do it even if you have a vaginal delivery. It's true.
0: Okay, then you have the risk of chronic pelvic pain. Not only do you have the risk of acute post-surgical pain. Now, obviously, if you're numb, you're not going to feel much during the procedure. But when the numbness wears off, it's very uncomfortable far more uncomfortable than it would be if you had a vaginal delivery, even with a tear and some sutures down there for the most part. Again, nothing is always, nothing is never. So that's part of our birthing instincts podcast rule, but you know, chronic pelvic pain. And that usually comes from adhesions or scarring. And anytime you have surgery, you could have adhesions or scarring. And then you could have problems with uh, pelvic pain and adhesions theoretically could cause problems with future fertility. So you could have fertility problems from a cesarean section, not really ever mentioned as part of the informed consent you get when you're laying in there and and you're signing papers contracting every three minutes. Yeah. Uh, If you have a cesarean, you mentioned this earlier, Bliss, if you're in a community where VBAC is not supported, then you're pretty much uh, at the uh, disadvantage of having to have a repeat cesarean.
1: Or have some extreme financial costs to relocate or, you know, something like that to, to do it. But yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. With cesarean, it's known that there's often more difficulty breastfeeding. I can't quantify that. It's just one of those things that's out there. I'm, I am I believe it's true. I don't know. There probably is some data out there, but these are the kind of things often that no one will fund research on because no one really wants to know. They don't care if you have to go to formula anyway. So why would they care?
1: Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about why some of that is. So you have sleepy moms and babies who are just exposed to narcotics. So it's easier for mom to miss baby's feeding cues. For mom and baby uh, to not feed enough because they are so sleepy. Mom and baby separation you really want to advocate for skin on skin, but even if you get immediate skin on skin, the baby's always going to go within a short amount of time because you're in the surgical room to the warmer to get checked out. So definitely there's an increase and a, and a quicker separation between mom and baby than if you had a vaginal delivery. Most of the time in the normal delivery rooms now, you'll see them give an hour or two. That golden hour is pretty respected pretty much every day. Every uh, hospital birth I've attended in the last several years, but with cesarean, you're almost automatically separated. Um, Harder for mom to position herself comfortably because of the surgery. Delayed skin on skin, which delays initiation of breastfeeding and harder in general for mom to focus on breastfeeding because she's in pain. So um, it's definitely one of the things that can happen. And then also um, the exposure through breast milk of of the narcotics and the drugs that you're taking for pain relief postpartum um, is definitely increased over a normal physiologic birth.
0: Right. Good, Bliss. Thanks. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague. And her company, BirthFit, is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum.
1: Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first you know beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages, so cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12 week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, So you can do it right out of your home. Um, and then, of course, they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30-day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess you can kind of test out and see if you like their, their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro- program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow.
0: Yeah, I, I've, no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. Me too. She's like, she was a chiropractor in L.A. before before they fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh, anyway, we we support them wholeheartedly because... This kind of a program is great for our, our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so you go to birthfit.com, that's B-I-R-T-H-F-I-T.com, use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1 with a number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's ob and midwife approved
1: that's right and right. please support them and congratulations on your pregnancy lindsay thanks for joining the team
0: welcome to the Berlin instincts neighborhood yeah anything that interferes with nature's design has consequences
1: yeah do you want me to talk about a couple of more things that the baby has from not having a vaginal delivery
0: yeah i i have one more but let's let's see what if the years will overlap so yeah go ahead okay.
1: Um, the other thing uh, that we talked about briefly, but babies not exposed to vaginal flora. So when the baby passes through the vagina, there is a, a cocktail of bacteria that we have learned in the last decade. Or so that is so important for uh, our biome and how our body creates immunity. So babies that don't have that, Um, are shown to have higher instances of allergy, autoimmune disorders, asthma, connective tissue disorders, arthritis, leukemia, et cetera. And there are some studies now that show lower development scores at four months and an increased risk of autism and ADHD. Um, The other thing that doesn't happen is that babies have a higher rate of breathing issues. Because when you go through the birth canal, it's a tight squeeze. And a lot of times, that fluid that's in your lungs as the baby is also initiating that first breath, but it's getting pushed out. So, um, babies don't have that kind of squeezing through the birth canal, which is a nor- normal part of the physiologic process. So, um, they can have increased susceptibility to wheezing and asthma. They have wetter lungs right after birth, and their lungs and gut are not colonized again from going through the vagina. So
0: yeah, they're more likely to need respiratory assistance. Mm-hmm. And if you know what that means in a hospital setting, whenever respiratory assistance is needed, there will be almost a knee jerk reflex to say that we need to observe your baby for a little bit. And the baby will op- will likely be separated from the mother and taken to the nursery, which is probably the dumbest thing that they could do. Uh, they sh- if the baby needs respiratory assistance, um, the mother's skin-to-skin will help that, unless we're talking about serious. But we're usually talking about, as you said, wet lung, that sort of thing, which will clear jits with postural drainage and some and some tender, loving care. Uh, mm-hmm. We know that because people will say, well, how do you know that? So Because because it happens at home, too. It happens after vaginal deliveries. And how mm-hmm. often do we end up transferring a baby after a vaginal delivery at home?
1: yeah, not very common
0: at all, mm-hmm. certainly not for mild respiratory abnormalities that would that in the hospital would require them by policy to go to the nursery for observation.
1: Right? yeah, but that means <laughs> yeah, you know it's interesting.
0: you mentioned you mentioned about all these chronic things that can happen to babies because of the microbiome and because of the of the cesarean delivery and not going through the vagina. and and I was reading something the other day they talked about the Amish population having essentially no autism.
1: Mm-hmm. And no chronic
0: disease. And it's been studied for years, but you won't find very many papers on it. Mm-hmm. Because again, it goes against the narrative. Why do they have so little chronic disease and essentially no autism?
1: Yeah. The answer
0: is because of many reasons, because they eat wholesome food, because they have vaginal deliveries, because they they don't separate, because they don't get vaccinated, uh, because they probably don't use pesticides. To my my knowledge, I don't know too much about the Amish. I'm going to be in Amish territory this summer though. So I'm going to try to learn some things. Uh, but yeah. And their C-section rate in the Amish population is what? Low. I'll just say low. Cause I don't want to throw a number out there, but it's ridiculous, ridiculously low. It's where it should be. If they can do it, why can't we?
1: We can. We can. <laughs> if the Amish could
0: do it, so there, so can the Kardashians. <laughs> okay. And then um, the other thing that, that, kind of is the, oh, uh, what's the term for it? It's just it's just lurking lurking underneath the, the just underneath the surface is the mm-hmm. fact that cesarean section has a five times higher maternal mortality rate. Mm-hmm. Now, five times high, a small number, as we always say, is a small number. But if they're going to blow it up uh, for like twice as risky for a breech vaginal delivery, then a head down delivery or something like that then we got when then we're going to throw it right back at them and say yeah but women who have a cesarean section even in first world countries have a four to five times greater risk of dying yeah and because of the policies and stuff that that happen in western countries these policies are carried into third world countries where the risk of dying from a surgery can be as high as one in 100 in certain third world countries so, that is a real downside of cesarean section.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: We've also seen what cesarean sections arise in. We, we talked earlier about placental uh, abnormal placentation or accreta. In 1980, when the C section rate was about, I don't know, 17, 18, 19%, the accreta rate was one in 1,250. And by 2000, it's one in 333. So it it parallels exactly the rise of cesarean and repeat cesarean section. And with accreta, well, 40% of women who've had three or more C-sections will have an accreta or a hemorrhage requiring a transfusion and possibly a hysterectomy. So if you're a family that wants three kids, four kids, five kids, or six kids, and you end up, your risk is so much higher after your second or third cesarean section than just about anything that could have, they could have convinced you to have that first cesarean section, except yeah. those ones that are actually necessary. So if you have this higher risk of abnormal placentation, that, that that's going to lead to these terrible outcomes. And that's a downside of cesarean section. Um, and the idea, again, getting back to our friend, Sarah Wickham, and and she talked about, the term you need a cesarean section because of this. And we need to change that thought process from need to, you know, we're recommending or we think you should have one because here's why, as opposed to saying you just need a cesarean section. Now, if you have a central placenta previa, okay. You need a cesarean section. You can say that. Yeah. yeah. But if your hips are small and because your baby is big or because you had a shoulder dystocia with your last pregnancy, does not mean you need a cesarean section. Right. And we're skilled, by the way, in the in the example that we gave with the podcast couple, their baby was fine. It took less than a minute to resolve the problem. I don't know. They said everybody was in a panic mode, which again is not good when you're a father watching, but um, they obviously got baby out. So it wasn't, it couldn't have been, it, well, it could have been a serious shoulder dystocia, but they knew what they were doing. But if mm-hmm. it's a serious and the baby wasn't injured and they knew what they were doing, why are they telling her she has to have a C-section in her next pregnancy? Why can't they just be prepared to do what they did this time, next time?
1: Exactly. Especially with the risks of the the surgery. Definitely.
0: And the last real downside of cesarean, which sort of we get into the mechanics of it very much, and Bliss, you probably have a lot to say on this one, is the psychological, emotional uh, aspect of having a surgical birth. Right. And how it affects people, yeah. which is not considered in the medical model in any of their algorithms whatsoever. Right. It may be on an individual basis, some doctor or nurse really cares about that, but that's not how it works in the medical model. Yeah. The medical model only cares about having a live baby in the bassinet. And the idea, uh, one real downside of cesarean is the cultural, emotional, psychological, Satisfaction and connection that that woman feels and needs.
1: Yeah, you didn't mention this, but pitocin is used postpartum, right? Yeah. For cesarean, same as it would be for a vaginal delivery, they would use pitocin, right?
0: Yeah. Did I not say that they they they, they hang pitocin?
1: I I don't remember. Get, I think maybe. I did. I think they said they
0: I give they give antibiotics and pitocin after the no. cord is yeah.
1: yeah. So um absolutely. I think that there are there are some women who feel really good about their cesareans. They choose a cesarean, it's planned, they feel really good about it. So I'm not saying that everybody. And of, of course, you know, when you have to have a surgery for anything um in terms of your health, when you when that's a choice that you have to make, you surrender to that and you know that this was the right choice for you. That what we're talking about is when, you, when it's not a necessary cesarean and you have the option to look and weigh out what are what's the best scenario for you and your family. But there are many women who feel depressed after this um, and really are looking to have a vaginal delivery next time, which is something that you can do. So just to remember that just because you have one cesarean doesn't mean that you have to have repeat cesareans. But the Pitocin also is mimicking the natural hormones that are in your body. And when you have a vaginal physiologic birth, you have this beautiful cascade of hormones that have you on a high. You're elated for hours to days afterwards, which helps with the bonding with the baby. And so not to say that women who have cesareans don't bond with their baby. They do, but they don't have that flood of those hormones to support that physiologic process, which also, interferes with breastfeeding and postpartum depression and all the things that we kind of touched on. So thank you for acknowledging that. I think that many women will feel very validated by hearing you discuss that it's something that in, you know, the industrial medical complex is just not really acknowledged. And it is a big thing to consider is how will this make you feel emotionally to not have that vaginal delivery if that's an option for you.
0: Yeah, in the heads up documentary, the disappearing art of Breach delivery, there's six women they interview, and three of them had C sections, and two of them, because I, I, I watched it so many times, I can I can memorize the words that come out of their mouth, and one of them says, "You know, I love my baby, but I I, I initially had no connection to my baby mm-hmm. after a C section, and the other one who ended up having general anesthesia, poor Liz." When she says this, I, I tear up every single time I've seen it. She says, you know, I I have no memory of his birth.
1: Yeah. Which is why when you were reading or talking about that podcast and the, and the husband said, husband. why don't they put you out? You know, yeah, it seems like that would be a good thing, but you actually miss, you wake up and your baby is here and you've missed that important part of the process and, and greeting your baby coherently and uh consciously you know so well, that yeah.
0: cocktail you mentioned is so important because again we talked about this but uh the, they've done experiments on animals where they've done general anesthesia uh, and done c-sections on certain mammals and then the, and then the mammal will not recognize the fact that these puppies are its puppies and will not take care
1: of them yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely
0: because that because there's something about that cocktail that it's obviously so important. And yet the medical model doesn't care. Yeah. They don't care that no matter what drug they do, no matter what intervention, if they get a liability in the bassinet, they just don't care about yeah. the process or where it leaves the mother afterwards for that, yeah. for that postpartum period. And for all her future babies. Yeah. So, and
1: how does that, like you were saying, how does that interfere with us really being able to care for our children in the ways that we would, if we were feeling satisfied and joyous? It's gonna be different.
0: Yeah. Right. So what we're what I'm hoping that we accomplish from this podcast is that is that our fellow travelers who probably know most of this stuff anyway, go out and create ripples out there for mm-hmm. people that are just like getting advice like this lovely couple, that they need a C-section because they had this happen last time. And make sure that they understand that there are downsides to having a cesarean and that in re- only in very rare cases do you actually need a cesarean. I mean, I don't know how but you know, again, it was medicalized but even in 1970 the medical model of birthing had a 5% cesarean section rate.
1: That's about what it is, um, I think at the farm it's a little less than that even, which is good statistics for us to look at because it's you know doing hands off for a very long period of time. Um, but five percent is about what it should be in terms of like life saving procedures and stuff like that.
0: Right, yeah. and in the current in the current system, we're never going to get there because they're never going to allow it. Yeah. So we We can only affect the people that listen, and that and then even the people that listen sometimes don't listen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but please but, share. It. like this episode, please share it with your friends um because that really does help get the word out. And I wanted to just um do a little shout out to my friend Doula Katie, who um sent me her information sheet, which I was able to kind of use as a guide for our conversation today. So you can find her on Instagram, Doula Katie. K-A-T-Y. Um, and uh, if you want to um, learn more about her services or access this document, you can reach out to her. Okay. Okay, great. Okay. Great. Yeah, this was, this all. was
0: good. I think that we were good. I was going to try to do something different. I think I mentioned it earlier on, I was going to try to talk about this uh, OBGYN Twitter meetup, but I know it'll get banned. So um, this was, a, this was where we were going to go initially until that came out. I think it's a good podcast to have out there. I hope that people enjoyed it. I hope that they will support our sponsors because by supporting our sponsors and using our codes, they support us and we can continue to come and do what we do. That's right. So thanks for listening, everybody. And until next time.
1: Until next time. Bye-bye.